Let me ask you to think about something for just a moment. Have you ever experienced a call upon your life from God? Maybe it came out of nowhere. Maybe it came out of an answer to prayer. You were praying about something and God just revealed something to you or gave you a prompt or a leading. Maybe though it happened in such a way that you just discerned a supernatural wisdom of God that touched your heart in such a way that it compelled you to respond to him in obedience. You actually understood that you had an encounter with God Almighty. And you knew that if you didn't follow through, if you didn't respond, you would be disobeying God. It was that significant. I've had several of these callings or leadings in my life over the years. 35 years ago, I actually felt called to marry my husband. It wasn't exactly what I was planning on doing with my life at the time. Um, Several months after moving to Sacramento out of college with a job, I was really lonely, sort of profoundly lonely, living by myself in a strange city, working a new job, everything was new, and I, I, I just didn't want to spend time dating anywhere. You know, those relationships that just go nowhere, but you invest your time in them for a season. And so I just really prayed. I said, Lord, I, I don't want to get married yet, but I really would like for the next um, person that comes into my life to be the man that I'm going to marry, but I just want him now as a friend. <laughs> You know how you kind of spell all the details out to God, exactly how you want him to move? Well, I started going to a church, and I met a bunch of friends, and those friends introduced me to Bob Nowak, and we became friends. Actually, we became best friends. We both said to each other early on in our relationship that neither one of us wanted to marry until we were 30, and at the time, I was 22 and he was 23, so this was going to be a long friendship. Nine months later, God called us to get married, and not because of any new life springing within me. <laughs> but then 10 years into our, you know, the first 10 years of our marriage felt like an emotional wasteland. It was so hard. Even though we felt God had called us to get married, the first 10 years were so hard. And there were times when I just cried out to God and I just said, God, is this really what you called me to? to this relationship that was so challenging. I think a little bit about Abraham. You know, he was called to leave his homeland and to go to Ur, to live in this promised land of Canaan. But of course, when he got there, it was hostile territory, ended up wandering around in the desert for years, not actually really possessing the land. And I think that's kind of how those early years of my marriage felt. I answered God's call, and yet it was this barren place to live for many years. But God was faithful, and he did cultivate a fruitful garden in our relationship. He did bring peace, and he brought joy, and he brought love, and he brought partnership in marriage, and he was actually faithful. Now I see what God had planned, and that um, this was his calling on my life. But it didn't mean that it started out easy. Another call in my life came to move at some point. We had lived in a neighborhood for 16 years. I loved our home. I loved our neighborhood. Many of my neighbors are in this class still and from that place where we lived. It was such a sweet place, but God literally called us to move. 
<clears throat> he called us to, to a house that was partially built with a vision for how that home could become a fully wheelchair-accessible house. Now, financially, it was impossible. Humanly, it was illogical. But God called. And we obeyed by faith. We trusted him against all human reason. And he did miracle after miracle to provide a beautiful place for our family to live these last 17 years, 18 years. What is your story? We all have stories of God's calling, of God's leading in our lives, of God's changing direction, of God calling us out of, uncomfort- out of comfortable places into uncomfortable places, of God taking us through different seasons. What is your story? Will you think about that as we talk about Abraham this morning? How have you seen God's faithfulness in both the good times and the hard times? Sometimes we know we respond when God calls with great enthusiasm. We say, okay, yes, I'm all in. I'll do that. And then there's times when we're like, actually, I think I have a better idea of how to live my life. And as we look at Abraham, we see both responses. Times when he was like, yes, Lord, and times when he's like, I think I have a better way around this obstacle. So we're going to look at Abraham's life today. We're going to look at his call to faith in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. We're going to then look at his walk of faith in Genesis 12, verses 4 through 20, and then we're going to look at his um, confirmation of faith in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. And what we're going to see today is that faith in God's promises is demonstrated by obedience to God's call. So let's talk about this. So first of all, we have just kind of done an overview of the first 11 chapters of Genesis in previous weeks. We've gotten a condensed history of the human race. We've learned that God created the world. We've learned what happened with the fall, mankind's fall into sin and disobedience. We saw the judgment that came with the flood. And then we saw the Tower of Babel and the dispersion of humankind all over the earth. So we saw some pretty significant things that happened over a period of thousands of years. But now, as we look at the remainder of Genesis, we're going to look at chapters 12 through 50, and we're going to specifically follow one family line through four generations. We're going to get to know some men who were known for their outstanding faith in God. Um, These were men who were also fallen, imperfect people, just like us. And um, we're going to look at them. They're the patriarchs. So there's, there's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Jacob, and there's Joseph. So these are what we call the patriarchs of the Old Testament. What we're going to look at now is going to compass between 300 and 400 years. And up until now, what we've seen is that God has revealed himself in general to mankind at large. He has had a general revelation of himself, but we've seen how sin and idolatry and human pride have distorted the realities that he's made known. So God is now beginning to concentrate on one man and his family, and through this family line, he's going to make himself known, and he's then going to protect this revelation of himself for the future of the whole world. Now, last week in Genesis 11, if you remember, that was that chapter we were just skipped over really fast. It was all of those names, all of that genealogy. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't even try to pronounce those names. We just flew right over that. But in there is something really significant because Noah had prophesied that his son Shem, that the line of Shem would now be the promised line of blessing. The line of Shem was chosen by God to be his vehicle to carry his word to all nations. And he chose this line simply because he chose them. They weren't more godly. They weren't more deserving. As we'll see, 
the sin that's wrapped into their human failures, but God chose that line from Noah to Shem, all the way, we're going to see now, Abraham. Abraham comes from the line of Shem. So in Genesis eleven twenty six, it says, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So Abram, we'll call him Abraham. We know his name gets changed a little bit later. Sorry, he becomes Sarah. So Abraham was born in the year 2166 BC. He grew up in a place called the Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans, which is in modern-day Iraq. Um, this is where people worshipped the moon god. That was there. It was a pagan culture, pagan worship. But we think that Abraham's family, because, you know, Abraham came from Shem, which came from Noah, we think that Abraham's family had some understanding of the Hebrew god. And yet, we know that his father was a worshiper of the moon god. So there's a lot of mixed worship going on in Abraham's family. Abraham had two brothers. He had Haran, and, and Haran had a son, Lot, and a daughter, Milcah. And then Haran, we think, died at an early age, because it seems that he, he left this earth pretty early. And that's why we know that Lot ends up hanging out with Uncle Abe. So that's where that relationship comes from. And then the other two brothers, Abram and Nahor, we hear take wives. Abraham takes Sarah as his wife. She's actually his half-sister. So they had the same father, but they had different mothers. We know right away, so Scripture tells us from the get-go, Sarah was barren. She couldn't have children. And so we know that that is an interesting piece of information since Abraham's name actually means exalted father. So how ironic that Abraham, exalted father, is married to a woman who's barren and can't have children. Immediately we're like, hmm, how is this all going to work out? Um, Then we have God has a divine encounter with Abraham and gives him some profound information. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham to leave his homeland and become the founder of a new nation that he tells him is going to be a blessing to the whole world. And so he's saying that basically the nation, this nation which is going to become Israel, is going to be formed out of Abraham's response to God's promises in faith. So listen to what happens. Chapter 12, verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I have a map. You had a map in your lessons, too, to kind of see where we're talking about. So what was Abraham leaving behind when he was called to leave Ur? There's some things that we know. In fact, actually, before the 1800s, people thought Ur was just a mythological place. You know, people think things in the Bible are just mythology, but they're not. They're history. And so in 1854, J.E. Taylor discovered the buried city um, in the desert of Iraq, and what he found were these clay bricks that ended up being part of what was a ziggurat, a ziggurat, a a worship monument um, temple to the moon god that was worshipped there, Nanner was his name. Then in the early 1900s, when they began to do more excavation, the archaeologists discovered writings that indicated this was actually the ancient city of Ur which was quite interesting. And then later, in 1923, a British explorer named Sir Leonard Woolley, he uncovered the entire city. And what they discovered was so revealing. They discovered royal cemeteries. They discovered um, large homes with courtyards where people would wash their hands and feet before going into the homes. And um, they discovered um, libraries, actually, in this city. They even believed, and this is believed to be Abraham's house, and it's just, it's just you know, 
it's just an idea, but the reason they think it could be Abraham's house is because one of the only houses in the whole city that was uncovered that actually had an altar for worshiping the Hebrew God. And so that's why they think it could have been Abraham's house. Today, actually, Ur is, is part of the desert. So it's not what it was back in its day. When Abraham lived there, it was a really rich and fertile land because there was this complex system of irrigation channels that brought water into the land that enabled them to grow crops of corn and barley and palm. So the heyday for Ur was in 2000 BC. The homes they determined were spacious. You can see even there how many rooms were in these homes. And they discovered that these homes actually had elaborate staircases and indoor plumbing. They found that there were hot water pipes that were put into the walls of these homes that actually provided indoor plumbing in the this year 2000 BC. So you can imagine how sophisticated this place was. But what we need to understand is that Abram's call to go to Ur was costly. He was called to go from a sophisticated city where he had grown up, where he knew people, where he had comfort, to go to a place that was going to be a very barren land with hostile occupants. He was going to leave everything that was familiar to him, and he was following God's command to have faith in what was really a very mysterious promise. God's call on Abraham's life required a response of faith to a perplexing promise. Listen to the promise in in verse 2. He says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." Now, there are, there's an imperative and three promises, and then an imperative and then three promises. So the first imperative is go. Get out of your country. I want you to leave your land. I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave your family. And then the promise comes in, and I will make you a great nation. Promise number one. Promise number two, I will bless you. And promise number three, I will make your name great. And then there's another imperative you will be a blessing. And then a promise. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who dishonor you. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So it's clear that God has called Abraham for a purpose, and Abraham's blessing is going to be for the whole world. Well, actually, first, the blessing is going to come to Abraham and Sarah because right now they don't have children. So it's very clear that God isn't going to give them a child. Somehow, God is going to provide a child for them, even though Sarah is now barren. But then the next layer of blessing is going to be for the nation of Israel. In other words, God is promising that Adam, Abraham is going to be the channel of blessing for the whole world. And so this is the Abrahamic covenant. God is saying, this is what I'm going to do through you and through your descendants. And indeed, when we flash forward, we find that Jesus Christ was born through the line of Abraham, and he brought salvation, blessing to everyone who calls upon his name. But there's something more in this covenant that actually ties us back to the Tower of Babel. You remember last week when we studied the Tower of Babel? What Babel, what that scene, we didn't get to talk about it in the message, but what it, what, it, what it symbolized was the fact that people had lost their understanding of God. 
They had lost the true revelation of God. They were building a tower to try to reach to the heavens. They were filled with pride and they wanted unity and they wanted power on the earth as people. They had no idea of who God was or what kind of relationship he wanted to have with them. And so sin had separated them relationally from God. So now, through the Abrahamic covenant, God is redeeming his relationship with mankind. He is redeeming it by forming a nation of people, by forming Israel. He is choosing a people to know and to be known. Not only is this for the purpose, as we will see when Christ comes, of bringing salvation into the world, but it's also for the purpose of relationship. God is choosing a people, he's calling out a people unto himself, where he is going to know them and be known by them. And they will preserve the knowledge of him for the whole world. So that today, what are we doing in 2018? We are gathering together to read the word that was written by Moses to reveal the knowledge of God. So that we, through Israel's record keeping and writing of the word and relationship with God, we now can have a relationship with him, a God that we know and a God that we are known by. It's amazing. And the truth is that God's call requires a response of faith. God's call requires a response of faith. I think about Abraham. How did this promise come to him? Was it a theophany? Was it an appearance of God who spoke to him? Was it an audible word that spoke to him? We don't know, but this was a dramatic message that came to Abraham that required action on his part, that God was going to do what he was going to do no matter how Abraham responded, but he knew that he had chosen a man who would respond in faith to him, and God assures him that, that he is going to be an instrument in the greatest blessing that would ever come to the earth. When was the last time that you responded to God in faith? Maybe it came as a conviction to you by the Holy Spirit when you were listening to the word being preached. You know that sense where you feel like, oh, that person, that preacher is speaking right to me. Or maybe it came as that, a tap on the shoulder in a time where you just feel like God is prompting you, he's leading you to respond to him in some way. Maybe it came as just like a whoosh right into your spirit where you just had an aha and you just knew that God was prompting you or leading you or calling you in some way. He was making something clear to you about your own life. I have experienced this several times in my life, now actually on almost two hands, um, where I have been going along in my way, thinking about my own thing, and it's almost like a download of understanding comes to me. It comes to me what I think is out of nowhere, but it is so re revealing, I guess is the word to use, about what God is going to do in my life, that it literally takes my breath away. And now as I look back, in each instance, God has redirected or done exactly what he revealed to me in that moment. One of the times was when I was a young mom and I was just getting ready one morning. I was just in front of the mirror. I was blow-drying my hair. I was thinking about the day. Adam was in elementary school. Spencer was a little toddler at home. And, and we were wanting to have a bigger family. So Spencer being maybe one and a half or two, it was time to start thinking about having another child. And... And I had this dream for my life. The dream was that I would have four children and that at least one of those children had to be a daughter because I grew up with just a brother and my dad was in the hardware business. So I grew up with lots of men and lots of male things. And so I just wanted, a, I've always wanted a sister and I thought, well, I can have a daughter. 
And so um, we were, you know, planning to try to have more kids. This was a plan that I had designed for my life. <laughs> well, um, in this moment, it was like this whoosh came into my spirit, and the Lord said, you are not going to have any more children. I'm calling you to serve me in ministry. And as a faithful, obedient, Abrahamic-like person, I said, no, 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 no. I can have more children and serve you in ministry. The crazy thing was, I wasn't even serving him in ministry. It wasn't like I had some big job in ministry that now I was going to do this and then and not have... I said, no, 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 Lord, that's not how it's going to go. And then I proceeded to test his word by trying to have more children. Now, I had both my boys without any help of birth, birth fertility drugs, but uh, for some reason I couldn't get pregnant. And so I started down the road of fertility drugs, and then more, and then some procedures, and, and going down that road. And I just considered like, no, 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 I can do both. And then it came to the place where, you know, you're going to have to make decisions for expensive fertility procedures. And I finally said to my husband, the Lord's not going to give us any more children. He's going to, I think he's going to call me into ministry. And of course, he was fine. He had two boys. He was happy. <laughs> and I was like, but I want my daughter's. And so you know what the Lord did? Over time, it took time, it wasn't immediate, he called me to be the pastor of women. I have more daughters, more sisters, more moms than I ever dreamed of. You see, God's ways are so much better than our ways. We think we know what we want for our life, but God's like, I have a blessing for you, and it's going to blow your mind away. It's going to blow your socks off. That's the way God is. When God calls you to respond to him in faith, he will bless your obedience in surprising ways. Is God calling you to leave a place of comfort? Is he calling you to venture into a new land? Maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's a new school or a new neighborhood. Maybe it's a new ministry opportunity. Maybe it's a new friendship. Or maybe... It's just a new season of life. Are you willing to answer his call by taking a step of faith? By to say, you know, I don't really know where this is going, but yes, Lord, I will trust you. And maybe you're wondering how you can be sure this is God's direction. Just ask him. Pray about it. Ask a trusted friend. Because God delights in making his will clear to us when he knows that we are eager to respond to him in obedience and faith. Let's look at Abraham's walk of faith. So Abram went out as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So basically, Abraham obeyed the Lord. He goes to Haran, and he hangs out there for a period of time until his father dies. So I guess that's what God had asked him to do. We don't really know that it wasn't. We do know that he brings a lot of his family and possessions in tow, which seems like, in my opinion, he might have brought more than what was needed. But when they came to the promised land of Canaan, they find there's people in the land. It's not like the land is bare and empty. Come on, move on in. This is what I'm giving you. There are hostile people in the land. The Canaanites were perverse people who worshiped pagan gods, and they were a dangerous threat to anybody who crossed their path. Abraham, I think, at this point, likely needed some courage. He needed some encouragement to keep pressing on. And so we see that God appears to him now to encourage him. In verse 7, it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. 
So Abraham, he believed God's promise, and then he expresses faith in making a place of worship, building an altar to the one true God is what, in the land of pagan gods. It's interesting because here the Lord has promised to make Abraham's name great, and yet over and over again we see Abraham going through the land, building places of worship, and making God's name great. He is establishing a presence in the land. And we see that Abraham's response to, to God's call reveals his good character. He's a man of good character. But imagine how hard it would be to trust God for so many promises that are not going to be realized in his lifetime. You know, he's been promised that he's going to have offspring, but yet Sarah is barren and there are no children. So how are the offspring going to be great enough to form a nation when he has no children? And we know when the call comes to him, he's 75 years old, so he's getting up there in childbearing ages. And now he is, he's been called to a land that's the promised land, the land that's been promised to him, and yet the land is barren, it's a desert, but it's filled with hostile people. It's dangerous. And he must be thinking, how is God going to fulfill his promises? What kind of faith do you think it was required for Abraham to believe in God's word when the realities of his circumstances were so to the contrary, where everything that he saw in his own through his own human lens, was just about the opposite of what God was promising to him. It's not surprising then that Abraham didn't always respond well when obstacles came into his path. Um, he's human, and we see that. I love that he's human. I love that as we, we know the Bible's true because if it wasn't, it wouldn't have written stories about such broken, fallen, mistaken people, right? It's real people who are struggling to live out a life of faith with God. And so we see in verses 10 through 20 that Abraham almost jeopardizes the, these promised blessings by going where he doesn't belong and then by lying about his wife. Look at verse 10. It says, now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sari, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake." So two things that Abraham puts in jeopardy. First, he puts the land in jeopardy because he departs from it. Did God tell Abraham to go to Egypt? Not that we know of. God had specifically told him to go to Canaan. Therefore, it seems reasonable that if God wanted him to go to Egypt, that God would have told him, now go to Egypt. But he doesn't do that. Um, and even though Abraham is still a wanderer in the land, even though he hasn't taken possession of the land, he is having an impact in the land because he is establishing altars, places of worship for God. He is, he is building a life and a history there for his future descendants. Famines were not uncommon in Palestine. It's not like this famine was unheard of and it forced him to go to Egypt. Famines were common. In that area, people lived off the rains. The rains that came are what, what allowed crops to be come food for them. So when there was a drought, it meant that food became scarce. 
Um, back down in Egypt, they have the Nile River, and so they're able to irrigate their crops with the river, so they're not as dependent on rains, which is why we often see people migrating from that area over to Egypt when droughts come. But we know that God called him to go to Canaan, and we know that God would have provided for him in that place, whether it was by sending a rain or by dropping food from heaven, as he does in, in Moses' day, either way, surely God would have cared for his family if he had remained in that place. But the second thing he jeopardizes is the safety of his family. Technically, yes, Sarah is his half-sister, but she's his wife. She's not his sister. And she was the, the mother of, um, of his future descendants. She was promised to be the mother of his future offspring. And so his scheme to deceive the Egyptians by saying that she was his sister was probably rooted in his Bedouin background, where it was customary that if, if someone wanted to marry your sister, they would have to go through a very long arrangement process that would take a lot of time. So possibly what he was thinking is, well, if someone wants to marry you and they think you're my sister, there'll be this huge amount of time to arrange all of that, to negotiate all of that, and then I'll be able to escape before anything happens. Let's just give him the benefit of the doubt. That's what he was thinking. We don't know, but he, here's what happened in verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Just as Abraham suspected, Sarah, Sarah's beauty attracted the attention of the Egyptians, just like he supposed that it would. And think of this, she's 65 years old at this time and still captivating in beauty and stature. Wow. Um, it, seems, it seems, however, that Abraham's plan went awry because what he didn't anticipate is that they would find her so beautiful that they would actually whisk her right into Pharaoh's palace and make her part of his harem. Now, so quite literally, Abraham has traded his beautiful wife for a bunch of farm animals and servants. <laughs> I, just, I just see God shaking his head up in heaven, going, Abraham, what have you done? <sighs> Takes us right back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Where after Adam and Eve first introduced sin into the world, we see another man and woman's relationship broken by fear and disobedience. And again, we see someone who has taken something that is off limits to them. So if this were a test of Abraham's faith, he is failing pretty miserably. But God intervenes because this promise that God has made to Abraham doesn't really depend on Abraham. It's a unilateral promise. God has declared, this is what I will do through you. And so he intervenes to protect Sarah's purity. And in doing so, he prevents his covenant promise from being jeopardized. Verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with, a, with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Instead of bringing blessing... To, to others through his obedience. 
Abraham has really brought judgment to others through his disobedience. In order, I think, to protect Sarah from sexual defilement, God sent a plague. He made everybody sick. And so there was no danger of her um, being compromised sexually. Um, He spares her virtue. He then rescues Abraham and Sarah out of Egypt. And it it actually seems like they might have gotten off pretty good because it says they they escaped really with all that they had. So they kind of came out with a lot of stuff, a lot of animals and servants. But unfortunately, these Egyptian extras ended up causing a lot of trouble for Abraham later on. What we see in chapter 13 is that now he and Lot have so much livestock that they can't dwell together anymore. And so they need to go find separate dwelling places. Lot takes the area near Sodom and Gomorrah, which ends up being a really bad place for him to live. It comes with a lot of tests and trials. And if you remember, well, as, you, as we go forward, you'll see that actually his wife dies as a result of living in Sodom and Gomorrah. And then we find later in chapter 16 that Hagar is revealed as the Egyptian maidservant to Sarah, likely acquired in Egypt, a place where he should have never been. And then, of course, she ends up giving birth to Ishmael, and that situation brings terrible sorrow and division and distress to their family, and actually continues to this day in friction that is felt between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac. So the truth is that disobeying God brings trouble and hardship into our lives. There's no way around it. If we disobey God, there will be trouble and hardship in our lives. See, Abraham, he believed God for the really big stuff. God says, leave and go, and he does it. He goes to the land that he can't even occupy. He goes into Canaan. He builds worship sites. He, everything is going so well until he starts actually thinking for himself. When obstacles start to arise and he starts to think, well, how do we get around these obstacles? Then things start to spiral down for him. You know, a drought comes and he's like, honey, let's go to Egypt. He's in Egypt, and he sees that they're attracted to his beautiful wife, and he's like, honey, let's just say you're my sister. You see, at some point, Abraham takes a rabbit trail off the road of faith and ends up in a dead end of disobedience where God literally has to fly in and rescue him and put him back on the right path. Think of all the trouble that came upon his family and Pharaoh's family because of his faithlessness. Can you imagine what the conversation was like between Abraham and Sarah on the way back to Canaan? Wow. Probably they weren't talking much. But fear is the antithesis of faith. So Abraham feared starvation, and so he made a decision to go to Egypt. Then he feared he would be killed if Pharaoh saw how beautiful his wife is, so he lied to her. But God overcame Abraham's obstacles. He's the one who overcame them, and he sent Abraham back to where he belonged, but not without consequences. So where do you think fear might be leading you to disobey in your life? Where has fear washed over your faith, covered your faith, blanketed your faith in such a way that you are struggling to obey? How are you thinking of ways that you can overcome your own obstacles instead of trusting in God? We're so good at problem-solving our own obstacles, aren't we? We just know how to figure out our own problems, but maybe that's not what God has for you. 
How might you pray and just ask God to direct your path and provide for your needs in the way that he wants to do that instead of trying to do it in your own way? Disobeying God always brings trouble and hardship into our lives. Well, lastly, let's see Abraham's confirmation of faith in Genesis 15. It's interesting because much of what happens between Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 actually show us that Abraham has really grown in his trust of God. What happened in Genesis 12 surely taught him something about trusting God because we see him making a lot of great decisions. We know that he goes and fights battles with foreign kings to rescue his nephew Lot back from captivity. We know that he refuses to take the spoils of war from the king of Sodom so that no one will get credit for the blessings in his life except for God himself. He's doing a lot of things right. Um, And God has blessed him in many ways, but he still doesn't have a child. He still doesn't understand how God is going to bring about these blessings if he has no offspring. And so how is God going to make him into a great nation if he has no heirs? But God sees his heart. God knows that he's wrestling with these things. And so God actually appears to him in a vision. I love the fact that between Genesis 12, when God speaks to him this Abrahamic covenant, God consistently appears to him and speaks to him and and reveals himself. He's continually encouraging Abraham along in his faith by displaying his presence with him. He's helping Abraham believe. And so now he appears to him in a vision and he says this. He says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. See, it was the custom in this day that if a, if a man died childless, that um, his, his um, household servant would inherit everything that he had. And so Abraham is concerned. He's like, is this your plan, God? That everything I own, and he owns a lot at this point, is just going to go to my household servant because you haven't given me a child? Now, he knows. He's getting old. You know, we know that in, by the time he has a child, he's 100, and Sarah's 90. We don't know. Maybe he's somewhere now um, between 75, 80 years old. And so he knows his own body doesn't work that great at that age. And certainly Sarah's body is past menopause. So he's logically thinking, how in the world is this going to happen? But God says, no. He says, a son is going to come from your own body. In verse 4, he says, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. When the night is darkest, the stars are brightest. When the outlook is bleak, take an up look. You know, it's like God points him to the heavens. He points them to the stars. He shows him an illustration of what's to come. He says, just like these stars, Abraham, this is as numerous as your offspring is going to be. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed. It was like he, it's that moment where you're like, oh, I get it. 
I understand. He saw those stars and he understood in that moment that his descendants would be in the line of fulfillment from Genesis 3.15 to the promised Messiah, that it was going to be through his offspring that this promise was going to come to fruition. This is actually the first time that the word believe is used in the Bible, the Hebrew word believe, and it doesn't just mean mental assent, it doesn't just mean an intellectual knowing. The word believe means a, a, like a holy leaning upon understanding. It's like, I just don't know this. I'm actually going to lean my whole self upon this reality that I know to be true. It's an amazing image. And because of this belief, God counted him as righteousness or credited him as righteous. That word credited or counted, it means that all the riches of God are credited to our account or his account. You know, we studied this last year in Ephesians. We studied this in Ephesians 1, what the riches of God are. Remember, we studied about um, being chosen, being forgiven, being um, beloved by God, being sealed with his spirit. All of these riches of Christ are credited to our account, and we stand before God in the righteousness of Christ. And so in Abraham's day, because he believed in the future promise of a Messiah, because he believed that he was going to be part of this, that God's word was true, all of that righteousness of his belief was credited back to him. And righteousness, we know that word means being in a right relationship with God. We talked about that with Noah. Noah was in a right relationship with God. Abraham was in a right relationship with God. And because we believe the God's, God's word, because we agree with God about who Jesus Christ is and what he has done to provide our forgiveness and salvation on the cross, not only through his death, but through his resurrection, because we believe, we agree with God about who Jesus is and what he's done for us, we are then credited, counted as righteous before him. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Yes. So true, but that true belief will change our behavior. That belief for us, it can't just be mental. It can't just be like, I get it, check the box. I know that to be true. It has to be the kind of belief that we wholly lean upon, that we live our lives upon, that our full weight is invested into, that, that, that we lean into that in such a way that we actually obey what God says. We actually do what he says. We actually trust in him. We actually allow him to remove the obstacles of our life. We lean into him, and we experience then the blessings of his promise. The truth is that God always keeps his promises. And Abraham was credited as, as righteousness because he believed in God's promises. I want us to look quickly at Romans because I want you to see how the Old and the New Testament, are they go together. We can't understand what Paul's going to say to us in Romans unless we know the story of Abraham. So Romans 4, 18 through 24. In hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should come from the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God because he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. 
but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Today, you and I are credited with righteousness when we believe in the seed of Abraham, who is Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And now all of us, all believers, are heirs of these promises that God made to Abraham. Galatians 3.29 says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. Are you an heir of Abraham? You are and I am if we believe and have received Jesus Christ as our Savior. What promises are you relying on God's faithfulness to fulfill in your life? I want to give you, and don't write these down, I will send them to you in an email, but I just want you to let these promises soak into your heart as we close. You have an acceptance that can never be questioned. You have an inheritance that can never be lost. You have a deliverance that can never be excelled. You have a grace that can never be limited. A hope that can never be disappointed. A joy that can never be diminished. A nearness to God that can never be reversed. A peace that can never be disturbed a righteousness that can never be tarnished, and a salvation that can never be canceled. Praise God. In Christ, yes. In Christ, all God's promises are yes and amen. And so like Abraham, would you stand and let's worship.